Welcome to the official podcast of Harvest Bible Chapel Indy West. Our desire is to make authentic disciples of Christ who worship Him, walk with Him, and work for Him. You can find more information about Harvest by visiting our website at www.harvestindywest.org or by downloading our app from your app store. We pray today's podcast will encourage your pursuit of Jesus Christ. I invite you to open your Bibles with me to the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, chapter 12. Revelation chapter 12. And we're going to read a story in the Bible about a dragon, the dragon. Let's begin reading Revelation chapter 12 and verse 1. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated. And there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent, who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb, And by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to to the help of the woman and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. Good morning. That's a slice of apocalyptic literature that is pretty intense. 
and it depicts something that is very real. And what I'd like to do this morning is preach a sermon on that passage and explain and apply it by showing how it culminates a theme that begins at the very beginning of the Bible's story. Did you know the Bible is a story about slaying the dragon? The Bible is a dragon-slaying story. Who doesn't love a good dragon-slaying story? You can all probably think of some you heard as a child, maybe some you still enjoy now, and that's a good thing. And the question is, why is it that we enjoy dragon-slaying stories? And I think the reason we enjoy them so much is that they echo the greatest story, which is true a true dragon-slaying story. So here's how, how you could summarize the story of the Bible in one statement. You could say, kill the dragon, get the girl. I'm serious. So there are three big main characters here. So one character is the dragon, and that's, that's the serpent, Satan, the villain. And then you've got the girl, the damsel in distress. That's the people of God. Uh, initially, it's Adam and Eve. And now it's God's people, the church. And then you've got the dragon slayer. That's the protagonist, the hero. That's Jesus. Kill the dragon, get the girl. Now, the, the term serpent is an umbrella term that includes snakes and dragons. So sometimes we picture dragon as, like that, uh, uh, sort of, where it's, a winged creature, that's like a land creature, and that, that might be part of the imagery. But the, the Greek term dracon, where you get dragon, uh, pictures a sea serpent that looks like a big snake. So you've got snakes like you, can, you, you would normally think of, and you've got sea serpents or this dragon, Leviathan. Those are under the category of serpent. And throughout the Bible, when the serpent's strategy is to deceive, it takes the form of a snake. And then when the serpent is attempting to devour, it takes the form of a dragon. You got it. Good. So, so snakes backstab, they lie, they deceive. Dragons assault, they devour, they, they attack and murder. So here's how the, the story unfolds. It begins with bliss. There's this damsel, initially Adam and Eve, Beautiful garden, pristine world. Then the serpent employs that first strategy to deceive. That's where this story begins. So let's go there. Genesis chapter 3. As you're turning there, I should mention that fiction is filled with stories about dragons slaying. And I'd love to dwell on each of these stories. I'm just going to name some of their titles just to connote images in your mind if you're familiar with these stories. Stories that are popular because they echo the greatest story, St. George and the Dragon. That's the, the classic one in English literature. Beowulf, John Bunyan's The Pilgrim's Progress, C.S. Lewis's The Chronicles of Narnia, J.R.R. Tolkien's The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings, J.K. Rowling's Harry Potter. These, these epic stories resonate with us. We love them so much because they echo the greatest story. And it begins right here in Genesis 3. I'm not going to take the time to read the whole chapter, but what I'd like you to do is have it open in front of you, and I'll refer to parts of it as we work through this. So what does this story in Genesis 3 teach us about the snake? Let me draw out some lessons. First, the snake is deceitful. 
The very first line, Genesis 3.1, says the serpent was more crafty. Crafty. In English, what does crafty connote to you? Is it a neutral term? It's got a negative connotation, doesn't it? That it connotes cunning, deceit. But the, the Hebrew term here is a neutral term. And it's, in some places in the Bible, it just means prudent as opposed to foolish. And in some places, it is negative. So initially, when you read this, it's ambiguous. The serpent was crafty. Is it prudent? What does it mean? Well, when you read and reread the story, in light of the, the Bible's whole storyline, the, the translation crafty is excellent. And it rightly connotes deceit, because that's what the snake is, deceitful. Another observation, the snake is a beast that God created. Again, the first sentence, verse 1, this is a beast that the Lord God had made. And why is that significant? It's, it's not like some big story where you've got two equal forces that are opposing each other, you know, good, evil, dualism. No, <laughs> you've got one supreme being, the God of the universe, who creates this being. This being, this snake, is underneath God. Another observation. This is in verses 1, 2, and 3. The snake deceives by questioning God. He says to the woman, did God actually say? So his first strategy to deceive is not to just contradict God. It's to question God. He reframes the situation. He, he emphasizes that Adam and Eve may eat from, uh, not that they can eat from every tree but one, but rather mm, they can't eat from any tree. It, it reframes it in a way where Eve starts to think, huh, maybe, maybe God isn't benevolent. Maybe God isn't trustworthy. Maybe God's trying to keep good from me. He's getting in her head. And then, verses 4 and 5, he just comes right out and says, you will not surely die. He contradicts God. He, he lies and blasphemes God as having selfish motives. And then notice in verses 4 through 6, uh, when, when Eve saw three things, the tree was good for food, it was a delight to the eyes, and it was desired to make one wise, the snake's tempting her with worldliness, just like the snake, the serpent, tempts Jesus in the wilderness. Remember what he says, command the stone to become bread. If you'll worship me, it will all be yours. If you're the son of God, throw yourself down from here. Which corresponds to 1 John 2, 16, desire of the flesh, desire of the eyes, pride of life. Questioning or tempting with worldliness here. Another observation, verse 13, Eve says, the serpent deceived me. So the snake deceives Eve to rebel against God. And Adam follows her. So initially, Genesis 1, 26 and 7, God commissions his image bearers to rule over the beasts of the fields. But instead, Adam and Eve are letting a beast of the field rule over them. They are not doing what God told them to do. They are committing treachery against the high king. And notice in verse 6, Adam, wasn't, uh, Adam was there. Eve was not alone. It says Adam was with her. So when Adam ate, he rebelled against God. He should have protected his wife. He should have killed the serpent, but he didn't. Now, as a result of the snake's deceit, Adam and Eve's sins separate them from God. And you see this in verses 7 through 13. Uh, they knew they were naked. Uh, they hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God. Their, their nakedness previously represented that they were innocent. But after they sin, they close themselves because they're no longer innocent. They hide from God. Also, uh, verses 14 and 15, as a result of the snake's deceit, God curses the snake and promises a snake crusher. 
Now, this passage is so important. I'm, I'm going to read this right here, verses 14 and 15. Because you've done this, this is the Lord talking to the serpent, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. So first, first thing to note here is that this is the form of snakes. I don't know what the snake originally looked like. It's possible that God may have created the snake with legs and wings. We don't know. Uh, but because of the snake's deceit, God humiliated the snake by forcing it to crawl on its belly, belly in the dust. So now we, we describe a snake as this long reptile, limbless, you know, without eyelids, and that moves over the ground on its belly with this snake-like flickering tongue that looks like it's licking the dust, eating the dust. Creepy, yes. Uh, so... Notice verse 15, God, God not only cursed the snake, but the snake's seed, the snake's offspring. And the rest of the Bible's storyline picks up on this right here. Every person is either a seed of the snake or a seed of the woman. And there's conflict between the two. The snake and his offspring oppose the, the, the woman's offspring. And the first seed of the serpent is the next story. It's chapter 4. It's the story about Cain, who murders his brother Abel. Cain is the first seed of the serpent. And that's why in, in Genesis 4.25, Eve says, God has pointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. So that offspring of the woman continues through Noah, and then Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, right through Judah, eventually to, to King David, all the way down to King Jesus, and now to us. And that term offspring, seed in some translations, can refer either to a group of people, like the people of God, or it could refer to a single seed, like in Galatians 3.16, specifically to the Messiah. Jesus is the ultimate seed, the ultimate offspring of the woman who crushes the serpent. Another observation, as a result of the snake's deceit, God punishes Eve and Adam with pain, verses 16 to 19. Also, as a result of the snake's deceit, God clothes Adam and Eve with garments of skin. Verse 21 says that God clothed them with garments of skin. Where, where did those garments come from? Someone had to kill an animal. And that foreshadows the animal sacrifices under the Mosaic Covenant, ultimately the sacrifice of Jesus for his people. Another observation, verses 22 to 24, as a result of the snake's deceit, God banishes Adam and Eve from the garden, sends them out, drives them out. And, and this part of the story connects to the rest of the Bible's storyline in several ways. One is there's this theme of exile and exodus. So God banishes sinful people from his presence, that's exile, and then he redeems them, he brings them back, that's exodus. And that, that theme recurs throughout scripture. And the ultimate exodus is Jesus saving his people. And then this other theme of temple, where the Garden of Eden is the first temple. And it's the place where humans meet God. And here, God thrusts them out of his presence. And the rest of the story is bringing them back into his presence. Beautiful. One last observation, and that's this. The snake is Satan. So, so you say, that's kind of obvious, isn't it? Well, many, many commentators on Genesis 3 highlight that the text in Genesis 3 does not explicitly identify the snake as Satan. You know, look, at, look through. It doesn't ever say the snake is Satan in Genesis 3. 
So some will concede kind of reluctantly, okay, well, since the New Testament identifies the snake as Satan, I guess we should say the snake is Satan. Others flat out say, no, in Genesis 3, the snake is not Satan. It represents not evil. The snake is embodying life, wisdom, chaos. But I believe that now that we have the whole Bible, we should read every part of the Bible in light of the whole. So when I read in Romans 16, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet, that brings to mind Genesis 3, 15, uh, 14 and 15, crushing the head of the serpent. Or 2 Corinthians 11 says, the serpent deceived Eve by his, by his cunning. What other serpent could this be than Satan? And then we read this already in Revelation 12 to open. The great dragon is the ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan. You can't get more explicit than that. And it repeats that in, in Revelation 20, verse 2. So the snake is Satan. Now, here's what I want to do. Uh, I'm, I'm in the middle, I spent the last three months drafting a book on a biblical theology of the serpent. And I'm trying to cram it all into 40 minutes. So this next part, it's number two on your handout, your outline that you got in your worship folder. I'm going to breeze through this real quickly and just try to show you what the Bible says about snakes, about snakes and dragons from Genesis, in between Genesis 3 and Revelation 12. All right, so we're going to go pretty quickly here, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be moving. Here we go. First off, I'll, I'll just concede that serpents occasionally symbolize good in the Bible. Not normally, but occasionally. Do you remember what Jesus told his disciples? He said to be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. That's a positive reference, right? Being shrewd as serpents, that's positive. So sometimes a reference, to, a reference to serpents is a good thing. But normally, normally, they distinctly symbolize evil, specifically God's enemies, Satan and his offspring. So starting with Genesis 3, the Bible connects serpents with the curse, with a serpent and sin. Serpents symbolize God's enemy, enemies. And the ultimate serpent is Satan. So he is the, the serpent that energizes all other serpents. All of the offspring of the serpent, Satan energizes them. And I've got some headings there on your handout. Satan tempts God's people, and then Jesus helps his people when Satan tempts them. God is sovereign over Leviathan. Read Job 41. Leviathan is the most chaotic, monstrous, fearsome creature, and it's nothing to God. God is completely sovereign over Leviathan. And God will slay the dragon. Listen to this from Isaiah 27. And that day, the Lord, with his hard and great and strong sword, will punish Leviathan, the flinging serpent. Leviathan, the twisting serpent. And he will slay the dragon that is in the sea. He's going to ultimately defeat this dragon. And as a consequence, serpents will no longer be deadly. Isaiah 11 and 65 talk about children playing the whole of cobras without fear of, of, of harm. God's going to take away that deadly nature of serpents. He's going to defeat the serpent. Now, there are other enemies that are offspring of the serpent that the Bible identifies as, as snakes or dragons. One of them is Egypt, and it's Pharaoh. So Ezekiel 32 uh, calls Pharaoh a dragon in the seas. That's how God describes Egypt, a dragon in the seas. And, and Egypt is a snake, a leviathan, a sea monster. This happens right when you open up Gen, uh, Exodus, Exodus chapter 1, 
And there's a story where the, the Pharaoh, who didn't know Joseph, is looking at these Israelites multiplying. And what does he do? He's a dragon who hates babies. And he decrees to murder the baby boys that the Jews have. He's a, he's a murderous dragon. And that story repeats itself in the Christmas story. Who's the next dragon like that? King Herod, who executes baby boys in Bethlehem. Again, the, the, the dragon, the serpent, is behind this to try to, to defeat the seed that he's afraid of that will, that will crush his head, and he fails. Also, back to, to Egypt, uh, during the, the Exodus, where, where Moses is dialoguing with Pharaoh, and then God delivers Egypt, in that whole dialogue, God is delivering his people from the Egyptian serpent. Remember when Moses has a staff and it turns into a snake that devours the snakes of the magicians of Pharaoh? Pharaoh's got this symbol on his head of a, probably a cobra. It's part of the religion. And God's saying, I'm more powerful than your serpent God. I'm more powerful than Pharaoh. And there's this imagery in, in Exodus 14 and 15 of after God delivers Israel from Egypt that his waves in the Red Sea swallow up Egypt. Like, it swallows, snakes swallow things up, well, God swallows up the snake. It's beautiful, beautiful. And then when, when uh, Israel's in the wilderness, they start complaining. We miss Egypt. We want to go back to Egypt. So God says, you miss Egypt? Here, have some poisonous snakes. And God, God sends these among his complaining people and then provides a bronze curse-bearing serpent and, and we're not going to go into all the details here, but there's so much to go to that's rich. But, of course, Jesus in John 3 uh, identifies that bronze serpent as a type of him, a curse-bearing, lifted-up serpent, bearing the curse for his people in their place. Later, in Isaiah 30, God compares Egypt to a toothless dragon, a useless ally. Don't rely on Egypt. And then God promises that he will judge Egypt in Jeremiah 46 and Ezekiel 29 and 32. Egypt is a dragon in the sea. Other other of God's enemies that are, are dragons include wicked leaders in Canaan and Moab. They're serpent heads to crush. I'll just mention four stories that connect to Genesis 3, 14, and 15 with this head-crushing terminology. Judges 4 and 5, Jael drives a peg into Sisera's temple. That's head-crushing. Judges 9, a woman drops a stone to, to crush the head of Abimelech. It's head-crushing. First Samuel 11, there's this, someone terrorizing Israel named Nahash. And Nahash is the Hebrew word for snake, the one that occurs in Genesis 3. This man's a snake, and Saul crushes Nahash, the snake, in First Samuel 11. And then of these four stories, the most well-known is First Samuel 17, David and Goliath. Goliath is wearing scales of armor. Then this, this, this actually, it's, it's, it's a more formally armor of scales, and that word scales occurs eight times in the Hebrew text. All other seven times, it refers to the scales of fish, twice of dragons. The, the text is saying that he's wearing scaly, dragon-like armor. It presents him as a giant dragon who's tormenting God's people. And what does David do to his head? He strikes it with a stone, and he falls forward like the idol Dagon, 
with his face on the ground, licking the dust like a serpent. And then David takes his sword and hacks off his head. What is this but defeating a giant dragon? Another enemy of God is the king of Babylon, a sea monster. Jeremiah 51 and Jeremiah 8 describe the king of Babylon that way. We've talked about King Herod being a murderous dragon. And then there's another group, like their spiritual daddy. There's a group of people called the Pharisees and Sadducees who initially try to tempt Jesus and then resort to attempting to murder Jesus, deceive and devour. And both John the Baptist and Jesus call them what they are. You brood of vipers. What they teach is poisonous and God will judge them for it. It's in Matthew 3, 12 and 23. And one more group, and that's false teachers. All over the New Testament, it warns believers about false teachers and describes them as these slippery, deceptive, deceitful, harmful people who try to get into the people of God and destroy them with bad teaching, with unsound doctrine. And two passages in the New Testament connect false teachers with serpents. One is Romans 16, 17 through 20. The other is 2 Corinthians 11. So all these offspring are, are offspring of the serpent. They're enemies of God. And then the story culminates in Revelation 12 and 20. So let's go back to Revelation 12 and we'll, we'll land the plane here in Revelation 12 and 20. We open by reading Revelation 12 and it's a jolting story. It's not like normal things you read, is it? It's apocalyptic literature. I'm not going to be able to take time to argue for all the reasons, give all the reasons that I, I'm interpreting it the way I am, but I'll at least tell you the way I'm handling certain aspects of the symbolism, and you can email Cody. Uh, I know you, you would afford it to Cody. Yeah. 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 Uh, I'm teasing Doug. Okay, so Revelation 12. Let's make some observations about the dragon in Revelation 12 and 20. First, Verse 9, how does it describe the dragon? The dragon is the ancient serpent. He's the ancient serpent called the devil, Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. So six labels I'm seeing. Got dragon, ancient serpent, which is referring back to Genesis 3. Devil, which means slanderer. Got the, uh, Satan, the adversary. The deceiver and the accuser of our brothers. All of those refer to the same evil enemy. Another observation, verse 3, what color is the dragon? Red. The dragon's a murderer. Red symbolizes blood to connote that the dragon is a murderer. Several other places in Revelation use that color red to tie it with murder. Another observation, verse 3, it's a what red dragon? A great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns. And on his head, seven diadems. This dragon is powerful. Those horns symbolize power, ruling authority, like in Daniel 7. The, the, the diadem symbolize that this power extends over the whole earth. Verse 9 says that. He's the deceiver of the whole world. Great power. This is a powerful dragon. And what does this dragon plan to do? Verses 1 through 4. The dragon plans to devour the child who is the Messiah. The male child is Jesus. 
And we know this because it says he will rule with a rod of iron. And that refers back to Psalm 2, verse 9. It's also in Revelation 2, 27 and Revelation 19, 15. Jesus is the one who rules with a rod of iron. And the dragon is, is trying to thwart God's master plan back from Genesis 3.15. He wants to devour the Messiah so that plan in Genesis 3.15 won't happen. Then verse 4, it says, Her child was caught up to God and to his throne. This is a way of, of very concisely summarizing what Jesus did after he was born. It doesn't mention explicitly his life and his crucifixion and resurrection. It's emphasizing his ascension back up. But it, that's the whole story here, captured up in apocalyptic imagery. And the idea here is that the, the dragon fails to devour the Messiah. He fails. It's like the Narnian white witch tried to defeat Aslan by murdering him on the stone table. So the dragon tries to defeat the Messiah by murdering him on a cross. And just as Aslan rose from that table the next day, Jesus, the Messiah, rose from the grave three days later. The dragon failed, just like the white witch failed. Another observation, verses 7 through 10, the dragon and his angels get thrown down to earth. So here's how I understand this. Satan used to have access to God in the midst of other angels, like in the book of Job, in the prologue of Job. Remember how Satan comes into God's presence and accuses Job Basically saying, yeah, he serves you because you bless him. But if you didn't bless him, he wouldn't serve you. Satan can't do that anymore. He lost access to God to accuse God's people that way. And I believe that happened when Jesus decisively defeated Satan at the cross. Verses 11 and 12 teach that the dragon is conquered on the basis of the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony. So Jesus is the ultimate serpent crusher. And he, he crushes the dragon by being crushed for our iniquities. It pleased the Lord to crush him. And because the Messiah was crushed for us, now we can participate in serpent crushing through him. Then verses 12 through 17, the dragon furiously persecutes God's people. The devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. I believe the woman symbolizes the people of God and that the 1,260 days symbolize a period of intense suffering for God's people before God delivers them. So the dragon right now is raging because he knows that his time is is short. He knows that Christ has decisively defeated him, so he's taking out his rage on Christ's church by trying to deceive and devour Christ's church, deceive them with lies and false teaching, to devour them with persecution. A common analogy that, that theologians use for this is from World War II, distinguishing D-Day from V-E-Day, Victory in Europe Day. You know, remember the difference? So at D-Day, it's when the Allies stormed the beaches of Normandy, and they, if you, if you just analyze who's got the most war material, the most people, where are they, from a master plan, that war's over. There's, there's no way the bad guys are going to win this one. But between D-Day and the official end of the war, V-E Day, some of the worst fighting of the war occurred, like the Battle of the Bulge. In between that, that period, the people who were going to lose were, were 
irrationally fighting with rage to the very end. That's what Satan is doing right now. Sin is irrational, and he is irrationally raging to the very end. He knows he's been decisively defeated at the cross, and that his doom is coming. But we're on the in-between stage right now, and we feel it, don't we? Another observation. This is verse 6 and 14 through 16. Uh, verse 6 says, the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God. The dragon cannot destroy God's people. So I believe the wilderness symbolizes a place where God tests and protects and miraculously nourishes his people. And then if you look down to verse, uh, chapter 13, the first four verses, you'll see that the dragon empowers the beast. The dragon is, is God's chief adversary, and what the dragon does is form this counterfeit trinity to ape the, the, the genuine trinity. So you've got the dragon, the Satan, and then you've got this first beast, which rises out of the sea, and then down 13, 11 to 18, you've got a second beast, which comes out of the earth. It's a false prophet. And the dragon empowers the first beast to accomplish his evil purposes. Now flip over to Revelation 20. I'll show you a few more observations here about the dragon. Revelation 20, verses 1 through 6, uh, at the beginning it says, he, he, uh, an angel seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who was the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and threw him into the pit, and shut it, and sealed it over him, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer, until the thousand years were ended. Let me skip over the whole what those thousand years refer to. I've got an opinion, but what matters most is that we can agree on this. Jesus is coming back to slay the dragon and save his bride. And God is more powerful than the dragon. In this passage, he sends an angel to bind the dragon. He doesn't even do it directly himself. His angels are more powerful than the dragon. Then also note in verses 7 through 9, Satan will be, I'm sorry, it's it's chapter 12, 7 through 9, and 20, 2 and 3, 7 through 10. So in both chapters 12 and 20, you have the same phrase. Listen to it. Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations. That's in both passages. Here's what I think this is teaching. The dragon, in this period, is attempting to deceive the nations. He wants the nations to destroy God's people. But look at the end of the story. Chapter 20, verses 9 and 10. Fire came down from heaven and consumed them, and the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So never again will the dragon, that ancient serpent, deceive and devour God's people. God wins. That's how this story ends. So now let's land this plane. How should we live in light of this Kill the dragon, get the girl storyline. Let me suggest six ways. I'll move quickly here. Number one, don't imitate the poisonous serpent. Here's what Jesus said to the Pharisees. You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth Because there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character. For he is a liar and the father of lies. So how might you imitate the poisonous serpent? By murdering, rejecting the truth, and lying. Don't imitate the poisonous serpent. Number two, beware the serpent as the deceiving snake and devouring dragon. 
1 Peter 5.8 says, be sober-minded, be watchful, for your adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. He is on the prowl to devour you. So be on the alert. Stay on the alert. Expect Satan, the serpent, to attack you and to keep attacking. Expect it. Don't let your guard down. Don't flirt with the serpent by entertaining his ear-tickling lies. And when the serpent attempts to deceive you, he doesn't talk to you like this. He doesn't say, like say if he's tempting you to look at pornography, to indulge in pornography. He doesn't say, hey, I've, I've done a cost-benefit analysis for you. And here's the benefit. If you look at the pornography here and indulge in this, you'll get a temporary buzz and, and it'll give, it'll be immediately pleasurable. On the cost side, uh, it might send you to hell. It doesn't glorify God with your body. It's a poisonous, fleeting pleasure. It foolishly wastes your life. It betrays your wife and children. It ruins your mind and conscience, and it participates in sex slavery. What would you like to do? Does Satan never tempt that way? No. He wants to deceive you. He tells you lies. He wants to make you think that you would be happier without God, without living God's ways. Be on the alert. Beware of Satan's schemes against you. Number three, fight the serpent as the deceiving snake and devouring dragon. So the last one was beware. That's more defensive. This one is offensive. Fight. Go on the offensive. That last passage I read from 1 Peter 5 says, be sober-minded, be watchful. And then it says, resist him. Firm in the faith. Don't just beware. Actively resist. Counterattack. God enables his people to tread on serpents. Now how do we do this? We don't fight the serpent with the same sorts of weapons that militaries fight battles. We put on the whole armor of God that we see in Ephesians 6. We fight the serpent by believing and speaking the truth, by upholding righteousness, by preaching the gospel to yourself and those around you, by unwaveringly trusting God, by living like someone whom God has redeemed, saved from the serpent by understanding and applying God's word, by praying at all times in the spirit for yourself and for God's people. You won't fight the serpent the right way if you're flirting with him. And if you think, oh, he makes some pretty good arguments about whether good is bad or whether bad is good, we should, we should give him a hearing. That's not how you win this battle. You're not gonna fight this battle the right way if you don't feel about the enemy the right way. This is not a time to feel sorry for the enemy. This is not a time where you might think, oh, you know, maybe he had a hard upbringing. No, you, you need to feel about the serpent the way you feel about the white witch when you read the Chronicles of Narnia or the way you feel about Voldemort when you read Harry Potter, the way you, you feel about Sauron when you read the Lord of the Rings. The serpent is undiluted evil. Evil, feel that. I mean, you, when you think about the, the serpent, you should feel disgust at his poison and outrage at his injustice and feel this deep longing for justice to prevail. Number four, trust the serpent slayer. You cannot defeat the serpent on your own. There might be times when the serpent is persecuting you or your brothers or sisters in Christ, and you might feel afraid or desperate 
or depressed. And that's when you've got to remember the, the storyline. You know how the story ends. God wins. Don't forget that. And, for, and remember where you are in the storyline. Yes, it's hard now. But you're on the winning side. Number five, exult in the serpent slayer. Don't distrust him. Exult in him. When you think about what he's done and what he will do, that should make you well up with jubilation, with praise. Exult in this ultimate knight in shining armor. And number six, and this might surprise you as an application, enjoy good serpent-slaying stories as echoes of the greatest story. Here's what I mean by that. Good books and good films that portray epic stories typically echo the greatest story. That's what makes them so good. That's why we love them so much. Sometimes the antagonist is an actual serpent, but often the villain is a metaphorical serpent that a hero defeats. So let's enjoy those as echoes of the greatest story. And just as an aside, uh, good stories don't flirt with evil and confuse you about whether good is bad or bad is good. Like a, a bad movie or bad book that makes you want to root for someone to commit adultery. Like, like the way it's set up, a story can mess with your affection so they are rooting for, for someone to do evil. That's an evil story. That's a bad story. We want to fill our, our minds with stories that echo the greatest story where good and evil are very clearly good and evil. And they're not this mix that's ambiguous between them. The greatest stories do that best. So now, let's pray. We praise you, Father, for sending your son to slay the dragon and save his bride. Thank you for saving us from the dragon. And we pray that you would continue to save us from the dragon. Help us be alert and to resist the dragon. And thank you that you're infinitely more powerful than the dragon. And we pray this in the name of the ultimate serpent slayer. Amen.